Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show, Thursday, January 26th. A lot of news to discuss today. We're going to start off the show today talking about some new economic numbers out of Washington, D.C., to the extent that they can be believed. What do they mean? What can we read into these numbers? What do they mean politically speaking? Once we do that, we're going to go through and talk about what needs to be paid attention to for the 2024 election. It's looking more and more like we live in a 50-50 country. Elections are incredibly close. There aren't red waves, there aren't blue waves so much as everyone expects them to be. It's a tight, tight market when it comes to politics in this country. And so every small factor matters. We're going to discuss that. I've got a few uh, or at least one or two questions emailed in here that we're going to discuss New Treasury study out in Politico. We're going to talk about that as far as who is paying the taxes in this country and who is receiving the benefits. Going to get into that. And then Mike Pence has his own classified documents problem now. All of that's going to be discussed here on today's show. But we begin, of course, as I said, talking about the new economic numbers out. Uh, Here's the headline from the Wall Street Journal, a report titled, U.S. GDP rose 2.9% in the fourth quarter after a year of high inflation. Quarter capped a year of economic slowdown, reflecting return to more normal pace of growth. That is what we read here, a more normal pace of growth. Now, I think it's important before we talk about these numbers to understand some of the context around what has really happened, what's really played out in our economy uh, so far. Of course, Biden was not handed a great economy. Trump, as president, allowed the shutdowns to take place. Once he allowed the shutdowns to take place, they didn't just happen once. It wasn't 14 days to slow the spread. The states went absolutely wild. They were shutting down their economies, opening them back up, shutting them back down, mandating masks, taking it away. It resulted in a great deal of chaos. U.S. GDP contracted by about 40% during that period. I recall Jack Berkman and I talking in 2020, and he's got really good, uh, prescient impressions on politics. Not on cultural issues necessarily or the latest news cycle, but I mean on hardcore politics, elections, and the like. And he was saying he just can't see how Trump can win when the economy has contracted 40%. All other things being equal, he just couldn't see how any president could win an election after their economy had contracted by 40%. It just wasn't clear to him how that is possible, how that could work out. And so that ended up being obviously a factor of some sort in the election. Uh, It ended up, I mean, certainly hurting Trump. It couldn't have helped him uh, that that was taking place. And so you see now that Biden takes over. They begin a great deal of spending. That caused the inflation uh, that we are now seeing. It caused a great deal of inflation, of course. They didn't stop. They kept the foot on the pedal when it came to federal government spending. And uh, here we are. Now we have contracted growth. Uh, We have uh, a situation where we've paid the price for this inflation. And they talk about a normal rate of growth. Yes, 3% is about normal. Anywhere between 2 and 3% is a normal, honest growth rate for an economy the size of the U.S. economy an economy that is as developed as the U.S. economy, it makes a lot of sense. 
But they write here, U.S. gross domestic product grew at a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 2.9% in the final three months of 2022, down slightly from a 3.2% annual rate in the third quarter. The Commerce Department said Thursday, consumers, the economy's main engine, spent at a solid but slower pace last quarter of 2.1%. Now, you have to look at how they adjust some of these numbers. Like some of the Black Friday numbers, for example, they said, oh, sales are up 8%. Yeah, but you had, or they're up 6%, but you had 8% or 10% inflation. And so when you adjusted for that, they weren't really up. The degree to which they adjust for inflation in these numbers is variable, depending on which number it is exactly that you're talking about. So they say economic output grew 1% in the fourth quarter of 2022 compared with a year earlier, down 5.7% growth 2021 and 2.6% growth in 2019 ahead of the pandemic. So the bottom line is that Joe Biden's economy is surprisingly strong. It's hanging in surprisingly well. There are a number of reasons for this. One of the main reasons is that defense spending has stayed high. Defense is about 4 to 5% of the U.S. economy, depending on which number you look at. You, of course, have the DOD. The DOD itself is the largest employer in the United States, employing about 1% of people. Once you go out from there to the prime contractors, the subcontractors, the people that don't even know that they're necessarily doing business with the military, but they are because their products are being purchased, it's a huge amount of growth. Now, Biden, of course, had his botched pullout from Afghanistan, basically signaling the end of the global war on terror, at least at the pace and at the veracity that was happening before. But the defense spending has not gone down. It has increased, in fact, in large part because of what's taking place in Ukraine. There's been extra and unanticipated spending. Now, of course, all of that is not necessarily cash in real terms. But when these U.S. armories, when these U.S. Uh, stockades are emptied out, there is replacement equipment that has got to be purchased, that has to be purchased in order to uh, get back uh, what was originally there. Chat's a little bit empty now. I'm just uh, curious about why that is. It seems to be working on my end. I don't know why it wouldn't be working or if it's not working for you guys, uh, but it should be. So that's kind of, I think, a, a tailwind that's helping the U.S. economy. Inflation is coming down. I think the big concern right now is is whether the Fed will be able to pin inflation at 2%. I think sort of, and this is what Jeffrey Gunlock has said as well, they're probably okay with 4% and they can lift off of the brakes then on the economy when, when inflation is 4%. Because if you try to get it to 2 exactly, uh, what's to say that it will go only to 2 and not go into deflation? That seems very much possible. So we'll see what happens here. But the economy is strong. If Biden can keep the economy afloat, it's going to be hard to beat him in 2024 from a conventional wisdom standpoint. Now, I want to talk about what Trump's chances are in 2024, really, uh, what his chances really amount to. But I, I want to discuss this not from the standpoint of the issues, but from the standpoint of kind of mobilization, electioneering. The way that professionals in, in D.C. and in the area talk about elections. There's these saying when it comes to the military and war, they say amateurs focus on strategy and professionals focus on logistics. And in politics, there's a sort of a similar saying that amateurs focus on the issues and professionals focus on mobilization, activation, turnout, 
How do you turn people out? How do you get them to show up? Because they, uh, the voters that is simply agreeing with you, that doesn't take you over the finish line. They have to show up. And what voters say they care about in phone polls and then what ultimately gets them to show up, those can often be very different. Not always, but they very much can be. And so when you talk about the issues of mobilization, the issues of showing up, the issues of fundraising, we're in a neck and neck race. It's a neck and neck kind of election. And so issues come into play that, you know, the, the professionals are focused on. Of course, I think chief among them probably is fundraising. What's the fundraising situation? Where does that stand? Well, going into the primary for 2024, DeSantis has a huge sum of money, probably something like 200 or $220 million if you account for both money in his gubernatorial campaign that he can roll over into his presidential campaign, and if you account for money that's in dark money packs. Uh, that are in super PACs on the sidelines, committed money that's not necessarily been signed over. DeSantis has marshaled the forces of the mega billionaires from around the country. Uh, People like Ken Griffin, uh, people like Jamie Dimon, uh, very influential members of the financial community, people that have become uh, big fans of the state of Florida and the way that DeSantis has governed in the state of Florida, they are going in big for his campaign. And they are doing so uh, while making clear that uh, they think that it's time for a new candidate and they don't want Trump. Of course, now Sheldon Adelson is uh, passed away. Will he be a player for Trump? Will his money be a player for Trump uh, to the extent that it's left around, put into wills and the like? It's not clear. Trump's real advantage comes from small dollar donors. Uh, Trump, in the wake of having Biden take power in January 2021, raised, and even before then, something like $250 million to investigate and fight election fraud. None of those investigations have ever borne out uh, to the extent that they've taken place at all. None of these fights against election fraud have, have worked out. There was a suit that was filed recently Uh, by Trump up in uh, New York, in which he was suing, I think it was New York, in which he was suing uh, Hillary Clinton over 2016 uh, election misconduct. And certainly there was election misconduct on the part of Hillary Clinton. We know that. I mean, all of the fake stuff, the Fusion GPS dossiers and all the rest, uh, plenty of fraud, plenty of criminal activity on the part of the Clinton campaign. But is it wise to file a suit like that in a jurisdiction like that? Of course not. And representing him was this Alina Haba, this uh, young uh, Arab woman who is principally a real estate attorney in the New Jersey, New York area. Once again, uh, going with these nice looking uh, young women attorneys who don't have any of the requisite experience that you would look for for that type of litigation. And it cost him dearly uh, the court ordering him uh, and his lawyer, in fact, sanctioning them both to pay nine hundred and seventy three thousand dollars to both the court, uh, some small portion of that to the court, and to the defendants in the case. Very bad idea to file a suit like that. So it is, uh, it's a serious, uh, serious thing. Um, Somebody asked here in the chat, so you don't think that after he comes back to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, won't help him if he gets out of that truth social, uh, truth social deal, June 24th, ain't going to cut it. He needs to, yeah. Right. I, well, listen, I, I agree. He shouldn't stay on Truth Social till June 24th. I think he's he's wrapped up into some kind of SPAC, penny stock, non-compete, 
agreement, something of the sort. Lord knows Trump would like to actually tweet. But I think equally important to Trump tweeting is him getting the feedback of real people. I mean, most everyone on Truth Social is a bot. They're not even real users. Look at the comments to any post. It's 90% bots promoting, you know, QAnon or, or just bots saying things that have nothing to do with the original post. There's almost no genuine, real traffic on Truth Social. And him getting the feedback is important. Remember, I was the person who would reply to his tweets at times. And on like nearly a half, I think five separate occasions, he would retweet my posts. Trump would. I was the first civilian at age 19 that Trump would retweet. He, he would retweet the vice president. He would retweet the secretary of state. And he'd retweet me. This is before he started retweeting all kinds of other people. Yes, before Charlie Kirk, before uh, anyone else. He would retweet me. And so uh, that's important that he gets feedback online, that he, can, he has a, a, a genuine feedback loop of, okay, I posted this. This is how well this did. I posted that. These people didn't like that so much. And by the way, Trump has never held that against me in terms of criticism. He's never held it against me. He's never been petty with me about it as far as, you know, if I say, yeah, I'm not so fond of the idea of being soft on rioters or something. I mean, he, he's never been somebody who to, to hold that against me on the on the occasions that I've disagreed with him. Um, you know, the bigger issue is just that Trump is very, in my experience, impressionable. And he, as Ann Coulter once described, sort of is like a sofa. He takes the, the shape of the last person who sat on him. And you know, the last person who talks to Trump, he's going to go with their idea. So getting the last word is, is, is what really matters, seemingly. So fundraising is going to be important. Uh, how about primary operations? I mean, remember, there's operatives needed to, to run these campaigns in these states to organize everything on the ground. I think when it comes to that, when it comes to being able to raise volunteers and raise, you know, an army that can, that can at least run volunteer operations, on that count, Trump has an enormous advantage over DeSantis or anyone else. When it comes to who's going to be able to recruit uh, sort of professional class operatives, Trump, I think, has a slight advantage because all the people that are pro-Trump are going to go to him. He's already got people that worked for him before he can call up who know how to do this. Uh, and, and furthermore, there's going to be the Trump people and everyone else, and everyone else, at least at the early stages, is likely to be split among a whole cacophony of different candidates, whether these people have any sort of chance or not. Now, many people will launch presidential primary campaigns John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, these people, Larry Hogan, I mean, they may or may not actually think that they've got a chance. It's a lot of times just to raise their profile. I heard that Tim Scott is very much going to enter this race. They want to raise their profile, get TV time, write books, become Fox News contributors for whatever reason. I don't know why anybody would want that job. You get paid about 85 grand a year and they call you up, take up your whole day you know, five, six, seven days a week. It's a, it's a tough life, but they want that. They, they want, you know, the vanity of that and, uh, speaking gigs and, and all the rest that will come from that. So does Ron DeSantis though, this is what separates DeSantis from the rest of the pack. Will he stick it out and stay in the race, uh, to the Iowa caucus, even if he doesn't have the support just because he can afford to, 
I think DeSantis has a reasonably decent chance in the Iowa caucuses, more so than any other candidate because of the way that the caucuses actually work, you know, with the, the boxes and you stand over here and we stand over here and you, you pull people to your box. And that's a it's an esoteric uh, expert operative centric way of running uh, running a primary election, the caucus system. Trump probably wipes the floor with him in, in New Hampshire. He can probably stick to South Carolina or even further just because of the money situation. He has the money to do it, to fuel up the bus and keep driving. Uh, so that's going to be interesting to see. And, and does he want to stay in the race long enough to sustain the kind of damage that he could sustain running against Trump if he goes one-on-one -on -one with Trump and Trump actually attacks him uh, versus stick it around till you know, 2028 and run against Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom, somebody who has a very poor record as a governor, who only appeals to the furthest left of the country, and Ron DeSantis, who most people I think agree has a decent record, has a very dynamic economy in that state. And, and, and of course, Gavin Newsom has the same in California, but uh, Ron DeSantis is doing a lot more with a state that's a very old state. It's a state of retirees. It's not California when it comes to geography, when it comes to uh, economic dynamism. And he's done a lot with it. So we'll see how that sort of works out. Uh, another issue is if DeSantis is somebody that sticks it out, if there's you know neck and neck competition or some other candidate comes to the fore, uh, what are the, you know, if you have a close race, you get into the convention, one thing I will tell you is that DeSantis or some other candidate would have an advantage over Trump when it comes to convention operations, if it actually comes to that. These people have an advantage. Trump won't have Paul Manafort presumably running the convention floor like he did in 2016. Not really necessary to have one in, in, in 2020, of course. So that's going to be a little bit of an issue. You, you need these specialist operatives that focus on these people, and there's probably 20 of them in the country or fewer. And out of those 20, five of them are in their mid-70s. People like Ed Rollins that really know how to run a convention. I mean, I don't know if he's going to be doing that in 2024. He's a bit old to be doing that. Uh, you know, Roger Stone wasn't really even terribly active in the 16 uh, convention, but I would assume he'd be less active. And, and of course, very foolishly, the RNC placed this convention in Milwaukee, a far left jurisdiction in which there's all kinds of funny business going on. And a lot of operatives that I speak to are very reticent to even travel to a place like Milwaukee because of the potential to be set up, to be framed, to be wrongfully accused of a crime by a far-left Soros DA. You've really got to think twice about even going to a place like Milwaukee. You really do. So that's, an, that's something we have to look at going into 24. Very important. Now, as you get into the general election... It's not clear to me that most of the issues of mail-in voting have been ameliorated at all. It doesn't seem that Republicans have learned anything from 2020. Look at the uh, Carrie Lake situation down in Arizona. She's still going around spouting off that she won by 500,000 votes and there's mail-in fraud and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, okay, uh, why didn't anybody do anything about this? That seems to be the bigger question. It's not clear that they've done much of anything about it, that they have any real plans to do that. Uh, Trump most certainly does not have, nor does the RNC have, the kind of 
uh, lawfare teams that you need. They really ought to have somebody like me hiring the lawyers because I'm very good at that. I've had to hire probably two dozen lawyers over the last several years because of the attacks from the Democrats. Lawfare is going to be hugely important. These people need to get their ducks in a row on hiring very competent lawyers and, and do that quickly to litigate these mail-in ballot situations before the election's been called for the other guy. Not afterwards, but before. That has got to be dealt with. And then people say, well, you know, if ballot harvesting is going to be the thing that happens, uh, Republicans ought to ballot harvest. Well, they, they have. I mean, Republicans have ballot harvested in California, leading them to get sued in these certain areas, like in Orange County, where you can do that, where you actually have right-wing suburbs, sub-developments where the houses are very close together, and you can go door-to-door very easily and harvest ballots. But harvesting ballots in Pennsylvania, especially assuming that the suburbs aren't going to be voting Republican, which I think is safe to assume, say the Philadelphia suburbs, it's not really possible. I mean, what you can you can harvest ballots in a in a in a close-together, tightly packed suburb very easily. You can certainly harvest ballots in a Section 8 housing project very easily. It's not so easy, however, to go to Dunbar, Pennsylvania, Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania, to go to, you know, rural, mountainous Pennsylvania and go harvest ballots. How ex- I mean, think about this for a second. You have, you have rural sprawl. If you have properties where it's not exactly even easy to get onto the property. People have got dogs. They've got no trespassing signs. They've got fences up. And if you came to their door to harvest their ballot, I'm not sure they'd like you very much. They'd be skeptical of you. They probably wouldn't, get, wouldn't give you their ballot. So the point is here is that the Democrats have this issue of, of having their entire voting block uh, built on a foundation, at least, of groups that are traditionally very low turnout groups, i.e. urban blacks. These are groups that on their own volition don't show up on election day. Incredibly low rates of turnout. On top of the fact that you're talking about a small group in the country, you know, say 10% of the country if you count urban as urban. Well, so what do you do about that? Well, all of these, you know, uh, ballot harvesting situations, mass mail-in ballot situations, that's how you turn your low turnout group into a high turnout group, as evidenced in the 2020 election, where you have black neighborhoods in Milwaukee that go from 14% turnout to 92% turnout. Call it fraud, call it whatever you like. It happened. Those electors went to Joe Biden. You can call it whatever you like. Doing the same on the Republican side is not necessarily, or at least not very easily possible because of the actual way in which the people that you're talking about live. And so the way that you fight this is in the courts and you stop the universal mail-in ballots. You must stop the universal mail-in ballots. And if Republicans aren't going to do that, and it doesn't seem that they're going to be able to, they didn't do anything in two years, I don't know what to do. And, and you know, you have a situation where at the RNC, look at the way that these people live. They, they bungled the 2020 election. Ronna McDaniel was going around having just nonstop five-star. I mean, this woman basically... For, she's on vacation for a living. Is, is, if you look at the disclosures, the spending, 
the financial evidence. This is a woman who lives a a luxurious vacation life full time. And people say, well, that's how you raise money. That's how you raise donor money. Whatever the case is, you don't deserve to be doing that after you've just bungled the 2020 election, after you've had the kinds of legal teams that the RNC put together that were so unbelievably incompetent. You shouldn't be able to be doing nonstop vacations. Somebody else should get that job. Now, it looks like she'll remain as RNC chair. Last I checked on what's going on there, they're picking that at this resort in California in Orange County, Waldorf Astoria uh, in Orange County, California right now is where they're doing this in a back room. It's unbelievable. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, this is my last point on what we have to pay attention to in terms of these factors going into 2024, is the internet. Now, it was just announced yesterday that Trump is brought back to Instagram and Facebook, to meta platforms uh, more broadly after a two-year ban. There's all kinds of situations, though. I mean, the question is, he's brought back, but is he going to be throttled? Is he going to be allowed to advertise? Are half of his posts going to be deleted? Is he going to use the platform? And then, moreover, it's not just having Trump. I mean, frankly, Trump is probably less important to have on there than the hundreds of other people who are his supporters, and and in fact, probably thousands, who have been banned, who are the high-profile producers of content who have either been banned or throttled by these companies. I remain banned on uh, Twitter. I asked you on the last episode to, to go and tag that Ella Gerwin and ask very politely and professionally to uh, restore my account. I would extend that invitation for you to do that once again. Uh, make sure you spell her name correctly. Tag at Ella Gerwin. I think it's G-I-R-W. It, it's in my telegram. You can find her, but I just, you know, so that she sees it. it if, she, if you don't spell it, then she won't see it. That would be nice uh, because... You know, it's uh, it's a situation in which uh, we've got to get back on the Internet. I mean, I just can't see how you can have uh, serious elections in this country in which uh, one side is just totally banned from the Internet. I, I just can't see how that can can work out, how that can be possible. You know, just I mean, where's Gavin McInnes's account? Where's my account on Twitter? Where's our Facebook accounts? Uh, it, it just makes it next to impossible when that is the way in which, in this day and age, information is exchanged. And it also leaves you a target to the deep state to attack you, knowing full well that you cannot issue a widely distributed comprehensive response to their attacks that's going to be widely seen. I'm very confident that had Jack Berkman and I never been banned from Twitter, we never would have been dealing with this robo nonsense and these, you know, rogue prosecutors in California and all of this stuff that we've had to deal with. Because if, if they'd have to think twice if we were able to actually get our side of the facts and our side of the story out there. Uh, it's it's something that leaves you very vulnerable to those kinds of attacks. So we've got to get the internet back. It has got to happen. It seems to be a little bit of progress. I mean, I've got Dave Rubin here releasing threads where Dave Rubin is talking about how he is literally going to Twitter's HQ, meeting with engineers, meeting with Elon, meeting with David Sachs, and they're digging through the records to try and figure out why it is that his numbers are slightly curtailed in the last two weeks 
from what they were because it appears maybe he's being throttled somehow or something. And it's like, well, that's all well and good. I hope they figure that out. But, you know, why doesn't he go there and and instead of figuring out what minor technical glitch or or malign activity or whatever the case might be, might be leading his numbers to go down slightly. How about figuring out what the hell's going on with people's accounts coming back? Why is that taking so long? That seems like a more worthy use of time where you got these influencers online saying, uh, Elon, yes, uh, when I press the like button, it's, um, it's turning green instead of red. Uh, can you fix that? Really? You pathetic dorks. It's just, it's infuriating. It's absolutely infuriating to see uh, how little support we get on the right, how how out for themselves these people are. Um, the Dave Rubens and the, you know who these people are. I don't. I don't even feel like saying their names. Uh, going to uh, your questions here before we get into the next part of the show. I've got a question here from Clay. Clay asks, and you, again, you can send these questions with or without donations. With or without donations, uh, you can you can send uh, in questions. Donations are Cash App Real Jacob Wool, or uh, you can go to jacobwool.org/podcast. That's through the Gumroad platform. Works well. Uh, question for the show here from Clay. He asks, "Hey Jacob, have you encountered Douglas McGregor's takes on the war in Ukraine? He seems very knowledgeable about tactics and equipment. It seems to have." sources on the ground in Ukraine. But I became skeptical when he downplayed Russian losses to be around 30,000 with just as many wounded and predicted Russia will win about halfway through the year. Thanks. Well, I mean, here's what you have. You have some takes that are just unambiguously pro-Ukrainian to the point that they border on being shills. I mean, people that say the Russians have suffered 400,000 losses and, you know, the, the, the Russian tanks are worthless. And uh, Russia's never able to win this war. And they also say things like Russia's kidnapped hundreds of thousands of children. That's one that I've heard. I mean, it's possible. I just, I, where's the evidence of that? I mean, how do you even do that? I mean, I it just, and then on the other side, you have, you know, people that, and you don't hear very much of these people. They're heavily censored in our media. They're hard. You, it's hard to track down interviews with them. Uh, but I think it's Colonel Douglas McGregor uh, has been somebody who over the years has been very anti-establishment. He's been very um, isolationist on U.S. policy. I would describe him as like Tucker Carlson, but even more, even more so. And uh, a lot of times these takes have have bordered on or maybe they've just overlapped with being pro-Russia, just even coincidentally so. Of course, the left would call Douglas McGregor a Russian shill. Um, but so you have these takes where, you know, the, the, the pro-Russian people will say, you know, the, the Su-57 is better than any U.S. fighter jet. It will blow every single U.S. fighter jet out of the sky. The, the Su-57 is as good as it gets. Or, you know, they'll say that uh, uh, the Spensnaz are, are better than any tier one unit in the U.S. They're the toughest, the best, the best equipped. And it's like, um, no, OK, no, they're not. Like, for God's sakes, they don't even have Generation 3 night vision, whereas that's now pretty much ubiquitous among U.S. infantry forces, much less special operations. Binocular night vision is pretty much ubiquitous. So the reality of all of this is that you have, you know, one group on one side, one group on the other side, and they're sort of the shills. Probably neither one of them are right, or when they are right, it's by accident. 
and the truth is likely somewhere in the middle. As best as I can tell, I mean, what you've had here is a situation in which it's been an incredibly warm winter in Europe. And what that's resulted in is less usage of energy, which has been very helpful. I mean, temperatures 30 degrees warmer in many cases across Europe seasonally than they would have been. Uh, people say, is that weather warfare? Did we cause that? It's like, uh, I doubt it because I don't see how you can create that much energy in the atmosphere through man-made means. It would take up more energy than it would save you on the other side. In my view, I mean, I, I, of course, there could be things that are just so space age that, that you know, I don't re even recognize it. But that has, has had that benefit of, of using less energy, making Putin's energy warfare less effective. On the other side of the coin, though, is that Ukraine has been very muddy, whereas normally you would have already had things freeze up. The ground would have been hard and frozen where you could traverse across it with tanks much more easily without getting bogged down in the mud. So you have spring-like weather. Now, you know, the question is, will you get a late freeze this year? And by the way, the weather's been the same way here in D.C. It's like just way, way on the side of warm. We've had all of five minutes of snow all year. And I mean five minutes. It didn't stick uh, back in, you know, I think it was two days before Christmas. So, you know, this is this has slowed down a Russian advance or Ukrainian advance. I don't see how the United States giving these tanks is going to make much of a difference uh, the Abrams tank, I'm told, has a logistics trail that goes along with it that makes it pretty much impractical for the Ukrainians. Between the amount of fuel that it consumes and the parts and all of that, I mean, it's got a jet turbine engine, but that, but it runs on diesel fuel, as I understand it. I, I you know, I'm not an expert on tanks, frankly, but uh, from what I read from the people that do know what they're talking about, the Abrams is not something that's going to be terribly useful. Uh, the Russians, it is said, are preparing to deploy another, say, 500,000 men. You only have uh, in Russia something like 8 million men in their 20s in all of Russia. So, and you have to figure, you know, some of them are obese and not fit for combat. Some of them are, you know, otherwise not fit for combat. Some are too far away. Some you can't track down. All of that. So the, I think the real risk from the standpoint of the Ukrainians is this. I think people are are really very um, people are very complacent right now, in the sense that they they seem to be certain in D.C. the defense people that I talk to that um, nothing much is going to happen in the next ninety days, and you know what you're going to have is maybe have a late freeze, but then you're going to have a thaw. It's going to mean more mud, and then perhaps Russia can mobilize by say May or June or July, and with really things peaking in July, that has been. Uh, the kind of assumption that I have heard repeated constantly. Now, what if the weather goes freakishly bizarre to the other side? You know, what if things stay frozen into mid-April or something? And what if Russia can mobilize troops more quickly? The risk of that from the standpoint of the Ukrainians would be that Russia can just totally outnumber them. I mean, just completely outnumber them and, and just overrun the place uh, outnumber them five to one or something, that would seem to be the risk and and it wouldn't be something that the U.S. could very easily counter. But we'll talk more about this on on the next episode. I mean, it's it's something that I'm covering as closely as anyone and have uh, throughout the history of this show and, and when we were on Censored TV previously, before we went independent. So I, I like 
I, I look forward to, to continue to cover this. And as far as Douglas McGregor goes, I, I you know, I'm just, I listen to him. I think he's knowledgeable. I think you're right. But I, I put him, I, I understand where he stands on this. And, and he is firmly in the pro-Russia, not even pro-Russia. He's not pro-Russia. That's unfair. But he's in the category of the um, Russia optimistic view of things, of their capabilities, of their forces, of their casualties. And I just kind of understand that whether it's a conscious bias of his or not, and maybe it is a conscious bias. I, I, I don't know. I mean, he's he's done a lot of work with RT, as I recall. So um, I'll look more into it, but we'll keep covering that issue. Want to go to this study, and I think it was one of you, maybe Nathaniel in the, in the Telegram chat, in my Telegram chat that shared this story, and I just thought it was worth talking about. It's this story out of Politico. Uh, The headline here from Politico, Treasury study shows stark racial differences in tax breaks and credits. The new report is part of a push by the agency to examine how race intersects with the tax system. So we look into this, and I don't know if Politico realized what it was they were actually reporting here and what this study actually found. I suspect that they didn't. But we're going to talk about it. I'm just looking here at the chat quickly. Um, we have no military and our gear is being destroyed at a very vast clip. Uh, muddy. Okay. I'll listen to McGregor. Thanks. Um, to move tanks into Ukraine without being bombed. How are they going to move tanks into Ukraine? Well, Russia's promised to bomb them, but that's a good question. I mean, I guess you fly them into Poland and you drive them over the border, fly them with C5s and, you know, and, and drop them off. Um, is Dave Ramsey's advice of paying all your debt and using income to build wealth the most efficient, realistic method? What about driving a nice car, suits, image, etc.? Um, so email that to me, please, uh, or somebody email this question to me, and I'll answer this one on the next on the next episode because it it deserves its own close examination. I think it really does, and, and the answer is kind of like, well, it depends as anything that complicated is. It, it really depends. Um, how are they going to... Uh, okay, so moving on here to this story, Politico, back to this here, uh, just examining the chat. Uh, it says here, at least 90% of the benefits of tax breaks for capital gains, charitable deductions, and small businesses go to white taxpayers, according to a new Treasury analysis. Well, let's think about this. Okay, of the benefits for tax breaks for capital gains. Well, okay, so that means white people are more invested uh, than others. Okay, makes sense. Um, Charitable deductions. Well, I guess white people are giving much more money to charity. And look, I mean, we don't know whether they actually adjusted this for the outliers. They probably didn't. So like when Michael Bloomberg, you know, writes off $6 billion in donations or Elon Musk writes off $5 billion in donations for world hunger. Turns out that was to his own charity, his own family charity. You know, I don't know whether they excluded those outliers or whether they should, but how much that affects that. Uh, and small businesses go to white taxpayers, and according to a new treasury study. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, most of the country is, is white. Many Hispanics identify as white. Um, when you ask them, that's why they had to create that category that says white non-Hispanic because otherwise Hispanic people were clicking white. So says here, white people were also more likely to benefit from the mortgage interest deduction and the exclusion for employer-provided health insurance, right? Because they're more likely to have a job and a mortgage. 
At the same time, the study found Hispanic people disproportionately benefit from a trio of refundable credits. The child tax credit, well, duh, because they're having way more children. Uh, the earned income tax credit, which is a tax credit you get below a certain income. So if they're making less money, they're more likely to get it. And a subsidy for health insurance. Right, because they're more likely to have subsidies for all kinds of different things. Uh, black families also uh, disproportionately benefit from the earned income tax credit. Well, yeah. Duh. I mean, I, I don't know why they needed a study to show you what is just obviously reflective based on people's incomes. What you know about their incomes, what you know about their labor participation, what you know about their enrollment in private versus public health insurance programs. I mean, all of this data is very much consistent with what you'd expect based around you know, the, the most simple of, of demographic measures. It says here, given the increased reliance on the tax system as a means of delivering benefits in recent decades, it is critical that we understand how tax policies affect different families and whether policies implemented via the tax code are reaching all families. It seems like they are. I mean, it, it really does. It seems like they really are. Uh, the IRS does not know the race of filers, so Treasury developed a method of estimating the likely race of the person listed first on a return based on other information. Focus on white people, black people, and Hispanic people due to high levels of uncertainty in estimates for other groups. I, I would think you'd have an easier time identifying like Asian and Indian people than you would identifying black people because black people on average, on average, tend to have indistinguishable names from 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 white people. Obviously, there are the black exotic names and all of that stuff. But I mean, on average, it's like Chris Johnson could just as easily be a white guy or a black guy. So it's been over the years hard to identify the difference. But anyway, that's what they say. It says here, the new research provides evidence of the disparities in the benefits of tax expenditures by race and ethnicity. But more work remains to be done to understand the reason for these disparities and their implications, the Treasury said. Differences in income, wealth, job characteristics, employer, family composition, access to credit, and so forth may give rise to these disparities in conjunction with the structure of the tax code. But more work is needed to determine which differences contribute the most. Well, it's pretty simple here. Based on the Treasury's findings, uh, white people are putting money in, and when it comes to the benefits that white people derive from the tax code on average, those benefits tend to be benefits in which they've put more money in than they ought to, and then they get some back. Or they've, they've generated uh, a great deal of, of capital gains taxes by making a good investment. They've paid it, but they get to keep a little bit back or take some back later uh, because there's some deduction or another. Whereas when you look at the benefits in which People are net, net beneficiaries. In other words, they're taking out more than they're putting in. Well, according to this data from the Treasury, those people tend to overwhelmingly, disproportionately tend to be racial minorities. It's nothing that we haven't known for a very long time, but it's actually incredible to see Politico publish this. And that's the whole article, by the way, folks. It's a very short article. Some One of the shortest that I've ever seen in Politico. Um and it must have just missed them in terms of what they're actually saying. They probably didn't comprehend that or they wouldn't have published it. Now, just after we published uh, the last episode of this show, came out that Mike Pence himself had some classified documents in his home. Once again, I couldn't care less about these things in terms of the actual merit of, of having classified documents or what have you. It really doesn't make much of a difference to me. 
at all. But that's what we have now learned. And uh, it makes sense to recall what Pence said on November 14th of last year concerning the whole issue with Trump and classified documents. Here's the clip. You take any classified documents with you from the White House? Uh, I, I did not. Um, do you see any reason for anyone to take classified documents with them leaving the White House? Well, there'd be no reason to have classified documents, particularly if they were in an unprotected area. Uh, well, there were classified documents and they were in, as you report, an unprotected area. Right. Uh, so there's a clip of Mike Pence. Once again, I really don't care. Uh, a lot of these people have classified documents. I mean, I, I, I've talked to uh, people, uh, I talked to a guy who's cleaning a, a garage of a general. There are tons of classified documents in the general's garage. I don't actually know why these people bring the documents home uh, and why there's they, they need them at home. Presumably because their jobs are such that they actually have to work late into the night sometimes and they have to reference documents as they do so. And so they need copies. That's my guess. And then they just stick around. Um but, uh, I mean, it was there malintent here? Uh, almost certainly not. Even Trump came out and defended Pence, said he did nothing wrong. So uh, th that's just kind of the, the story there. Uh, I don't think that charges are likely to come of Biden or Trump now and all, all of this. I mean, of course, they could still charge Trump because of some of the obstructive nature of the way that he dealt with it because of his lawyers and competence. Or the obstructive appearance and the way that they can make that look and, and, and feel in the law. But we'll see. All right, we'll be back here Monday, 2 p.m. live, folks. Hopefully, we're back on Twitter by then. Once again, tag that Ella Gerwin and Twitter safety, if you would. Uh, ask them to restore at Jacob A. Wool on Twitter, if you feel so inclined, politely, professionally, of course. You can support this show financially, Cash App at Real Jacob Wool, Cash App Real Jacob Wool, or uh, you can go to jacobwool.org slash podcast. We'll be back here 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time Monday live on YouTube. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great weekend in the meantime, and I'll see you then.